Well, welcome back to all our viewers and from all of you around the world. Welcome back to Palestine Deep Dive. Every week, we look at the issues behind the headlines with a special focus on the Middle East. Uh, and uh, this week, we're looking at the prospects for foreign policy and what the Biden administration may well mean for uh, Middle East foreign policy in particular in the United States of America. And we do want to hear from you. So please do send in your questions. Uh, tell us where you're from. Uh, tell us who you'd like us to address the questions to. We want to have a lively discussion. We've got three very distinguished guests with us today. Um, welcome to all three of you. Uh, I'm delighted that we're joined by Phyllis Bennis, uh, Chris Doyle, and for the first time, a welcome to Dr. Garda Kami. Now, just uh, very briefly before we start, I should tell you something about them. Many of you, of course, will know them, uh, but uh, just for, for those of you who don't, uh, Garda is a former research fellow at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter. She was born in Jerusalem and was forced to leave her home with her family as a result of Israel's creation in 1948. The family moved to England where she grew up and where she was educated. And Garda practiced as a doctor for many years, working as a specialist in the health of migrants and refugees. And from 1999 to 2001, she was an associate fellow at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, where she led a major project on Israel-Palestinian reconciliation. Welcome, Garda. And Phyllis Bennis is a fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, DC, and of the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam. Uh, focusing on issues relating to the US policy in the Middle East and the United Nations. Her books include Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict. She currently serves on the board of Jewish Voice for Peace and the Afro-Middle East Center in Johannesburg, South Africa. And uh, finally, uh, Chris, Chris Doyle. Chris, as many of you will know, is the director of the Council for Arab-British Understanding and is its lead spokesperson. He's an acknowledged expert on the region and a frequent commentator on TV and radio. He regularly has articles published in the British and international media. He's worked with the council since 1993, I think, with just a break for a couple of years at one stage. He graduated with a first class honors degree in Arabic and Islamic studies at Exeter University. And Chris has, of course, traveled very widely in the Middle East and uh, North Africa. Now, this has been um, an extraordinary topsy-turvy week. We've just been talking about it. Uh, we've been all following the US presidential elections. We're not going to get into a, too much of a deep dive about processes, uh, but I think just to begin, if we're talking about the incoming Biden presidency, we all seem to accept that it's going to happen. Um, I'm going to ask Phyllis one or two questions because you're there in Washington. Uh, we're talking very much as though the Biden presidency is an absolute racing certainty. certainty. But I mean, we're also watching uh, an extraordinary theater taking place of uh, results being dispu first disputed. Uh, we're having uh, the, the President Trump's legal advisor, Rudy Giuliani, having quite bizarre press conferences talking about how the vote has been stolen. We're seeing a whole range of of legal challenges and we're also told today that there's a big focus on the state of Michigan where there's going to be an attempt to actually get the uh, the representatives, the electors to vote the other way. Phyllis, can you throw some light on all of this? Uh, is there any chance that uh, President Trump can at this late stage throw the election? Well, he certainly can't throw the election legally. Uh, it's not impossible that he could engage in the kind of activities such as yesterday, apparently he actually telephoned two of the Republicans who happened to be part of the, uh, the, the civil service operation in, in uh, Michigan who will be responsible for certifying the election, who had certified it. They had voted, they had signed off on the election saying it was free and fair, that Joe Biden won the election. And he tried to persuade them to reverse their decisions. Now, that kind of, of tampering with, with the election obviously would be illegal if we had a judiciary and a Department of Justice that was thoroughly independent, et cetera. 
right now that's still sort of simmering. It doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere. I think what's more important than the ins and outs of these daily outrages that we're seeing uh, is, is for people around the world to understand the limits of the US democratic system. It's really not very democratic. It's not based, for example, when we talk about electing a president, it's not based on one person, one vote. We don't have a system where everyone who qualifies to vote in the United States, every citizen over the age of 18, casts a vote for who they want to be president. It doesn't work like that. It's based on the states. And there's something called the Electoral College, which was established when the US became a country, when the settler colonial uh, um, methods of, of establishing a state after destroying most of the indigenous population who once lived there, I won't talk about familiarities right now, uh, they established a state and made sure that the parts of that state that supported slavery would have inordinate influence. So what is now these large, lightly populated, mostly rural states in the center of the country have through a very complicated system that nobody really needs to understand right now, uh, they have a lot more power in the vote than the coastal states and the states that are much more urban and have much heavier populations. So that the 40 million people of California, for instance, have about, I think about 45 votes for those millions of people. The people in say Wyoming, which only has three votes, but they only have less than a million people. They have like 700,000 people in the whole giant state. So it's that kind of imbalance that we see that leads to a very undemocratic system. That's a huge challenge for those of us in this country who care about democracy. And what it means right now is there's all kinds of ways for a president who is insisting on he cannot lose to, to pick at different aspects of it and try to go to the courts, try to go to the press, try to go to the people, try to go to his base among extremist, violent, people like the Proud Boys and the Nazis across this country to engage them to insist that he really won the election. That's what we see. It is a kind of theater, but it's a very dangerous kind of theater because it really can jeopardize not only the specific results of this election, but the, the reality of life in the United States could be at, at risk from some of this. And, and Phyllis, we're, I mean, we're still seeing votes being counted in, in different parts of the country, which seems yeah. remarkable. These are, these are recounts in, in most cases that have been demanded by the Trump uh, uh, operation to say, we found three pieces of, of evidence. One was 10 votes that were found here on the floor that were not properly counted. One was X you know, they're, they're playing games with this and demanding a recount, which they have the legal right to do. And until that recount is then completed, um, it doesn't get certified. And to so tell us something before we, before we uh, move to uh, Chris and, and to, to Gard, tell us something, if you will, um, about um, voter suppression, because this is something else that a lot of people have heard yeah. about for the first this time. Is, this is a much graver threat to the democracy of the United States than anything Trump is doing right now with trying to go to the courts and whatever. This is a systemic process that has been in place in the United States, again, rooted in slavery. Once black people were free from chattel slavery after the Civil War and were made citizens with the right to vote, they had to fight for the right to vote and many died fighting for the right to vote. That's what the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s was all about, was making real the ostensible right to vote that Black people had at that point. What has continued since winning the vote has been a process, not only in the South, where it's been much more overt, but across the country, there are efforts underway that take both spurious legal means and physical means of intimidation, uh, making it very difficult for voters, for example, in poor communities which are predominantly black and brown, they will remove, for example, all but two voting sites. So you have a huge county, for instance, with only two places to vote. Inevitably, the lines will be around the block and beyond, and people who either don't have childcare if they're, and they're not working, or they have a job and they don't get paid if they don't show up, they can't stand in line for eight hours 
to wait to vote. It's <clears throat> deliberate and it's deliberately targeted at black and brown communities, at impoverished communities. It's poor people, disproportionately indigenous, black and Latinx people who are the targets because it's known that they will vote for more progressive candidates in much larger numbers. And that's what we're facing on a, on a much more regular basis that is really a serious threat to democracy in this country. Thanks, Phyllis. I mean, Chris, coming to you, you've been watching these elections like everybody else. I mean, what's your takeaway from the whole process? And also, you know, given that, um, uh, that the, the, this particular model of democracy is often held up as a sort of great beacon for the rest of the world to follow. I mean, do you think, do you think it uh, stands the test of time or does it need uh, serious reform as an, as an outsider looking in? Well, thank you very much, Mark. It's a real pleasure to be here with you on uh, Palestine Deep Dive again. Uh, these, these elections were, were fantastic in the sense that so many people were watched. They were glued to their televisions, to CNN or whatever, to, to the New York Times Needle, Wolf Blitzer and John King. They became household names, etc. So to see that sort of engagement and, you know, I think it was days before we all stopped sort of biting our fingernails as we saw these tiny little counts coming in in counties that nobody knew where they were, etc. So uh, at that level, it, it was extraordinary. And, and clearly, and certainly in Europe, uh, most people, uh, it would have seemed from the polls, etc., were rooting uh, for Joe Biden, uh, uh, particularly the end of Trump, really. So uh, I think that, that, was, that was great. And it was, I think people were really um, uh, impressed and amazed at the huge numbers of people voting. I mean, this was an election, let's not forget, was taking place in the middle of, of a pandemic. You know, that you know, 200,000 people, you know, it, it's extraordinary to see that and people going out to vote. So this, I think, sent a very powerful message across the world. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's, the, that's the positives. And, you know, despite all the mud, the Trump bunch are trying to chuck at all of this democratic process. It was a pretty well-run system. The levels of fraud appear to be, you know, very low, etc. So that's the, the sort of positive side. But the real disheartening thing that gets me is that over 73 and a half million people voted uh, for this man, this racist, this misogynist, white supremacist, Islamophobic, anti-Semite, uh, a charlatan. He's a president who's lied over 20,000 times since you know taking up office. He proposed bleach as a remedy for COVID-19. He's sucked up to pretty much every dictator on the planet. He has made enemies of the yeah. democratically elected you ones. You really don't like President Trump much. So the thing is... Well, what's to like? Uh, you know, so, um, you know, but we have to be humble, Mark. You asked about, you know... What, no, no, I, I understand. I wanted to come on briefly to ask you about this too, because all of that, uh, and of yeah. course, such a divisive figure... And it's ironic, some people might say, that this great autocrat in the making got such a, a turnout around him. I mean, this, this record turnout to which you're referring. Yeah. But what, what are your concerns about the, the last couple of months of the Trump presidency? We already are reading uh, reports that apparently uh, Trump was mulling a possible uh, military uh, attack on Iran. I mean, what, what else uh, should we be watching out for? What else is he perhaps capable of doing in the next couple of months? I wouldn't rule out anything. He's capable of anything, this man, because he really only thinks of himself, his own interests. He doesn't think of the, of the country. So we've got another 62 days. And uh, this has always scared me. This is not a lame Donald Duck, you know, presidency period we're looking at here. He can, if he so chooses, really set some fires going, uh, particularly internationally. Uh, he will make it very difficult, as Phyllis, you know, quite rightly outlined, for for Joe Biden to to deal with all the the issues that he can deal with, you know, set these traps and landmines for right now. And I think that's his aim to make it really tough for for his successor. Uh, is he going to bomb Iran? Well, I think he's been put off at least for the moment. And you know, having spoken out against these forever wars, perhaps not. But I think he certainly is going to pull troops. Uh, out of Afghanistan, uh, maybe Iraq, maybe elsewhere. And whilst I don't have a problem with that, I will have a, probably have a problem in the manner in which he does it in an irresponsible fashion, that it will be done in a way that, you know, those countries could be left in, you know, 
real crisis because he's not going to do it in a way that you know helps Afghanistan or Iraq. So I think that's a, 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 a big challenge. And it's also what he doesn't do. I mean, we're seeing various crises flaring up at the moment and Donald Trump is saying nothing, doing nothing. Well, on one level, that's great. But did he say anything on Nagorno-Karabakh? And Phyllis may know. There's now a crisis brewing with the Polisario and Morocco, uh, for example, is just another one. I cannot see him doing anything but fanning the flames as opposed to acting as the firefighter, acting responsibly. So he's going to stir thing, uh, things up here. Um, as for, uh, you know, Palestine, we're going to come on to, uh, you know, uh, normally I have a lot of sympathy for the views that it doesn't really matter too much whether you have a Democratic president or a Republican president, because, you know, more or less they're the same. But I think it does matter uh, in this occasion, because I think that he has taken it, taken American policy so far down the line of basically giving Netanyahu anything he wants the whole time. And, you know, we can hope perhaps, and we'll talk about this, that Biden can put the brakes at least on some of those most extreme policies. I'm not wildly optimistic, but I think at least we- We'll get we into that, the extreme we'll into that, Chris, policies. And, and, and thank you. I'm, I'm gonna move on to Gurunman. I'm just gonna, we're getting questions in and we'll come to some of those soon. We, Michael Gilligan has just sent in a message. He says, uh, uh, greetings from central London, commonly known as perfidious Albion. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I thought England was perfidious Albion, Michael, but anyway, greetings from you. Uh, thanks for joining us. We've got John Whitbeck in Paris who's got a question. I'll come to you in a minute, John, but I'm going to come to you, uh, Gareth, if I may, and welcome again. Um, I mean, you know, under President Trump, any real pretense of the United States being an honest broker in any ongoing Middle East uh, peace process has really been blown away. There's, no, there's, there's not even been an attempt by the Trump administration to be an honest broker. And it has really, by anybody's uh, standard, shifted uh, the agenda quite markedly. And I suppose there's a question, uh, which is at the end of this, um, you know, the United States putting its two fingers up at the United Nations, at the EU, at just about everybody. But at the end of all of this, um, where does it leave uh, the Palestinian leadership? And, what, and how has it been so easy for the Trump administration to apparently pull over uh, countries like the UAE or Bahrain to this... Uh, to the, to the edges of this uh, Trump deal of the century. This, so what, what about the Palestinian leadership and where, where does it go next? Look, first of all, hello to everybody. Um, uh, let, let me just say that the spectacle that we've been seeing of the United States uh, preaching democracy, uh, prepared and very much I'm thinking of the Arab world, which has been lectured about democratic governance, about their failures, about their shortcomings, uh, and for which Iraq has paid such a heavy price, supposedly bringing democracy to Iraq uh, in 2003. So there is a, a real irony here that uh, here we are, the Arab world being told continuously that it's full of autocracies, that it doesn't understand democracy. And here we have the spectacle in the United States that Phyllis has described so well of, of things which are actually absolutely undemocratic. So that's the first thing to say. Now, the second is that uh, obviously, uh, from a Palestinian point of view, uh, the Trump administration, the record uh, of the United States is viewed from the prism of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and what hope one can hope for, or what, what help one can hope for from, um, from America about this. Uh, well, what can I say? I mean, the Palestinian leadership is a creature of the Israeli occupation. The Palestinian leadership, which is full of people who of very types, many of them genuinely upright, uh, 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 loyal people who want to serve the Palestinian cause. But the structure, the way that the PA was set up, the whole structure of what it does, its lack of independence, its lack of, 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 of um, uh, any power, is a, a direct product of the Israeli uh, military occupation and a direct uh, product of the complicity 
of the West, the United States, the UK, Europe, in this particular setup. Mm. So I'm reluctant to um, criticize the Palestinian leadership too harshly and to say that but for them, their failures, but for them, things would, be, uh, would, would, have, been, would have been different and so on. I'm reluctant. Why? Because this is what happens in colonial occupations. You rear, you cultivate a class of person, you give them privileges, in the Palestinian case, really quite pathetic, but nevertheless, you give them privileges, they get titles, and they feel important. And in return for that, you make them work for you. And that is the setup in Palestine now. And people should well, understand look, I, that. Thank you for that, God. I'm going to come on to another couple of questions for you. But first of all, there's a message here from uh, Wally Yazbak. Wally says, uh, uh, free Palestine. And greetings from Atlanta and Blue Georgia. So there we are. Thank you, Wally. I know you've got some questions. We'll come to you shortly. John Whitbeck uh, has written uh, in. And uh, this actually follows very much, God, on what you were saying just a moment ago. Question. Um, how do you think Biden would react if the Palestinians changed their declared goal to a single fully democratic state with equal rights for all? Is that, is that aimed at me? That's for you, absolutely. Good, good, good. I'm, hello, John, and, and I'm very pleased for, that you put that question in. Um, in a way, you see, the, the Palestinians uh, should be moving fast to the resolution of saying that we are already ruled by Israel, we are not sovereign in any sense at all, the, the Palestinian Authority has no authority, this is a farce, and uh, the reality is that uh, the, the Israeli uh, government is ruling the whole of the land between the river and the sea. Uh, half of it, which is us Palestinians, uh, are being ruled without rights and without citizenship. And it's it seems obvious to me that that has to be the next step. That the Palestinian, uh, whatever leadership is prepared to take this message forward, must say to the world, to the Israelis and to the world, this is our situation. We are, uh, are being ruled without any kind of rights uh, and we demand equal rights with everybody else that Israel, that Israel uh, rules. And now, uh, what, how would that be received? It will not be received well, I can tell you immediately, because uh, the United States, like the West, like Europe, like the UK, are hooked on something called the two-state solution. And in my view, there's very good reason for that. They would like to, or they claim that they would like to see a part of the old Palestine being ruled and, uh, and, and, and becoming a Palestinian state, an independent state for the Palestinians, quote, alongside Israel. That's what they'd like to see. Now, you've got to ask yourself, why is that? Because it's manifestly unjust. The two-state solution is manifestly unjust. It doesn't even give half the land to the Palestinians. God, I'm going to interrupt you there, if I may, because I'm, I'm going to put that same question um, that same question uh, to you, Chris, uh, what, what do you think if the Palestinians were to take, take that major decision to push for a secular democratic one-state solution? Well, it would be an extraordinary step, and I, uh, I agree with Radha. I don't think this is going to happen, and I don't think it'll be received well. It won't happen whilst we have um, the current leadership in, in Palestine. I think that uh, Mahmoud Abbas is far too wedded for uh, that quest for an independent state of Palestine. So, uh, and I don't think any American administration is likely to endorse and accept a, a one state scenario. So uh, it really, um, I simply don't see this happening. I think for the international community, it's not for me to say what the end outcome of this conflict is, but it is uh, for us to say that there's international law here. There's an occupation that must be ended. There's discrimination that must be ended. There's refugee rights that, you know, should be adhered to. And, you know, those must be the essential ingredients of whatever the solution is. Uh, and then, you know, in, if in the end that it, it amounts to a, a, a single state or two states or three states, well, that's for others. But those are the ingredients that must be there. And if they're not there, then it won't work. 
Phyllis, a, a quick question to you. I'm going to put this to you. Uh, this is from uh, John Booth, who is in Fife in Scotland. Um, Ram Emanuel figured prominently in the Obama administration before his Chicago morality, mayorality. Is he coming back to another influential role under Biden, do you think? You'll have to switch your mic on, Phyllis. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I don't know yet. The, those announcements are coming out in dribs and drabs. His name has certainly been mentioned. It will not be anything having to do with international issues with foreign affairs, that's certain. He's being mentioned for, for uh, Secretary of Transportation as a possibility. But I, I want to come back to the earlier question just briefly. I, I think Chris is absolutely right that those of us in the international community who are not Israelis or Palestinians, we don't get a say in the, in the political arrangement of states somewhere else in the world, for me, six, 7,000 miles away. You know, I'm a Jewish girl from California. I don't live there. It's not up to me to say how many states. But it is up to me and people like me to press our governments to focus on the issue of rights. And I think increasingly we're seeing all around the world from Palestinians themselves and from the, the widening, the expanding, the escalating strong uh, uh, Palestinian rights movement we're seeing that focus on the issue of rights. So if you look at the rights to end the occupation of 1967, the right of refugees all around the world to return home, the right of Palestinians who are citizens of Israel at third or fourth or fifth class citizenship, the right to end all of those violations could be the demand whether it's in one or two states in theory. Now, as an analyst, I can look at the ground and say, whatever I think about a two-state solution, it doesn't really matter because it's no longer possible. One could imagine there could have been a two-state solution where there was both equality within both states and between both states. That last part is something that no one ever talks about, the equality between the states. We don't even hear the idea that a Palestinian state should include the right to control its own borders, the right to its own airspace. None of that is included. So if we talk about rights, I think it makes much more sense than keeping the focus on states, which is, it's just not either relevant for most of us who are not ourselves Palestinians or Israelis. And it's something that where there's not a lot of options at this point, there are options on the question of rights. And that's where you do get to international law, the centrality of the United Nations, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. These are the instruments, not the US Congress and the US White House that should be making the decisions about what are the demands of the Palestinians. I do agree with Gada and Chris that if such an announcement were to come, it would not be welcomed. Biden would certainly take the position he has always held. He's a strong supporter of a two-state solution, or as they like to say it in the US, two-state solution with swaps. You have to say it very fast and it's all one word. Two-state solution with swaps, <laughs> which is always to the detriment of Palestinian land and to the advance of Israeli settlement land. So that's what we're, we're dealing with. Biden has a very different view than uh, Trump. And well, I'm going to come on to that, Phyllis, by the way. I'm going to come on to that. And in fact, uh, just, uh, some people were concerned that I was not going to put John, John's question to you. Of course I was, but I wanted to ask you that question from our other... Uh, guest um, uh, John Booth, first of all. But look, if I could come to you, Gala, and I want, because we were talking about this at the beginning, you know, what the, the, can the Trump uh, administration continue to do over the next couple of months? Well, we see in the past few days, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, at the Golan Heights um, in the occupied territories. He's, he said that the uh, boycott and divestment campaign is, uh, should be called anti-Semitic. He said that goods made in the occupied territory should have made in Israel stamped on them. I mean, do you think that um, this pushing of the dial is so hard, so quick, so deliberate, um, that what Phyllis was just talk, beginning to talk about there, um, it's going to be very difficult, even if Biden wants to, to, to start pushing the dial back? Or is that just an excuse for not, for inaction? No, I actually think you're right. I actually think you're right, because this is the way it's been all along. I mean, I'm speaking as a Palestinian who's observed that from the beginning, of this whole wretched story. And I, it begins in 1948, by the way, and not in 1967. From the beginning of this, 
uh, others have called the shots and they've been accepted. So norms are created all the time, which the Palestinians have to kind of accommodate. You know, a very good example, the right of return. The right of return was passed by the UN General Assembly. It doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean a thing because nobody's going to help to implement it. And as a result of which, Palestinians, alongside with other people, have talked about it diminishingly less stridently because they've accepted or they've understood that this is not something that's going to be allowed. So in, what I'm saying is that the bar is set by others and the Palestinians have tried to accommodate themselves because they know very well from experience that the next time there's a peace initiative, it doesn't start from the beginning, from 1948, which is what it should do. It starts from whatever was the latest decision by uh, the United States, by Europe, whatever, um, and so on. So with Trump, I don't believe it will be any different. If you look at uh, what Biden's already said, he said he's not likely to return the um, US embassy to Tel Aviv. Well, why is that? Why not? Because it's illegally present in, in, in East Jerusalem. Uh, therefore, why, why not? So, but that gives you an indication. So. Well, Yada, that's interesting. I'll come to Phyllis on that because you know, you're you're there in Washington. You've got the, a lot of contacts, I imagine, in the Democratic Party and what have you. And I, I suppose the question is, okay, so um, President Biden is saying, you know, he may not be able to move the embassy back, but is there not more pressure growing um, uh, in the Democratic yeah. Party for a different approach? I mean, we've seen a, a much more aggressive uh, view coming out in recent years. So, I mean, might he not be pulled in directions he may not normally have wanted to go? Absolutely. And this is what's different with this election, even than was true when President Obama was elected, whose own view uh, was far more open-minded, I think, than Biden's is at the beginning. But there wasn't the kind of power of our movements and the kind of power within the split in the Democratic Party, which has emerged so powerfully in the last four years, particularly since 2018, in the last two years, with the election of what became known as the Squad, four young women of color who were elected to the US House of Representatives, uh, all of whom, one of whom of course is Palestinian, Rashida Tlaib, and all of whom uh, were willing to challenge the usually unchallenged view of the, the uh, unlimit, unlimited uh, version of US support for Israel. Now, they, were, they had support from a few others, Betty McCollum, a, a, mainstream Democrat from, from uh, uh, Minnesota, who was the first to introduce an actual law that would have prohibited any use of US military aid from being used for Israel's uh, military juvenile detention system. Israel is the only country in the world that has a military system for detaining children as young as 12. It's, it's a horror show. I mean, you read the UNICEF report and it's, it's shocking. And this is the country that the US says is the the only democracy in the Middle East, and that's why we give them $3.8 billion a year of our tax money. But in that context, we see that there is a huge shift underway. There's now been five more people elected this year to Congress, so it's now nine who are identifying themselves as part of, quote, the squad, they use that term. Uh, and most of them have taken a position saying in various ways and to various degrees, uh, they're all different. They have different constituencies to represent. They have different views. But in one way or another, they're all much more open-minded on the question of Palestinian rights. Some of them much, uh, um, much, much harder committed to it because they come out of movements. And the other part of it that's so important is that the, this extraordinary year of movement mobilization, the Black Lives Matter movement across the country, the women's movement, the women's march, other movements that have risen, the sunrise movement of young people around climate, all of those movements are taking positions about cutting the US military budget, which is as big as the next 10 countries in the world, including Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and the other big spenders, 10 times. You know, I mean, 10 countries together are still less than what the US spends. So there's demands for cutting the military budget, and there's demands for changing US foreign policy, including in many of those cases, the demand to cut US military aid to Israel, to condition that aid on 
human rights considerations. It's a whole different level of debate. And the reason is the work of these movements for the last 20 years has changed public opinion so that support for Israel has become a thoroughly partisan issue. And the majority of Democrats, particularly the majority of young Democrats, and increasingly Democrats of color, are saying that they support Palestinian rights more than they support Israel. Some of that has to do with the barbarity of Israeli actions, particularly in Gaza, in the three wars of the last recent years. And a lot of it has to do with the work of our movements, which have done the education and the pressuring the BDS movement and other parts of it to show people what support for Israel actually means. That Thank it's supporting you, a government oppressing others. Because I think, you know, we're broadening out as well, which is where, we, where I quite like to take it. And some of our questions are pointing that way too. Um, we've got here, Stephen Watters has written, and he says, uh, he talked about uh, a, a discussion last night, a DCI talk last night, Apparently, and, and I don't know, you probably know this, 168 children on average have been detained each month this year, and a total of 13,000 since 2000. This is in the militarized system that Phyllis has just been talking about. Um, I should just say also, uh, keep your questions coming in, and we've got an um, announcement here today uh, that uh, it's the UN, it's UN World Children's Day, and um, Palestine Deep Dive has, pub has published a previously unseen piece written by Roger Waters in November 2017 today. And prophetically, his piece warns against the growing attacks on freedom of speech, human rights, and the BDS movement. So you can read it, uh, Roger Waters' article, his piece, his comment piece on the Deep Dive uh, website. I'm going to come to you, Chris, if I may, because we've been talking in specifics about uh, how a Biden presidency might or might not mean a great deal of change in Middle East uh, policy, but also could, I wonder if we might just look at other areas of foreign policy too whilst we're here, because so much has happened in the prism of Iran, if you like, and one of the um, signature points of this pre Trump presidency was the unilateral decision to walk away from an internationally brokered agreement on, on, on nuclear weapons control, on nuclear non-proliferation, the JCPOA agreement. I mean, and of course, you know, in the past few days, we were talking about this earlier, we've, we've heard that President Trump was mulling possibly a military attack on Iran. Do you, do you think that, um, and given that President, when President Obama was elected, within literally within hours, he picked up the phone to Tehran, do you think that Joe Biden might do the same thing, reset relations with Iran? I think that all the indications are that in terms of the Middle East, at least, Iran will be the, the center point of the Biden administration. This is what he's going to concentrate on because there is a very narrow window of opportunity in their mind uh, before the presidential elections in Iran. So they've got six months. And the thinking is that the hardliners will win that election. And if there is going to be any new sort of deal, a revised version of the 2015 JCPOA, then they need to make progress right away. And this is why we are seeing Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump doing all sorts of things to make this really tough. They've promised sanctions every week between now and the 20th of January. They are going to crank up their maximum pressure policy. This is the policy of really sanctioning not just Iran, but anybody who's dealing with Iran. And you see this actually then hitting Syria as well as a consequence of that. Uh, it's all part of Iran policy. And I think that in a strange way that Trump's Iran policy set the tone for his policy towards Iraq and Syria and even arguably Yemen. And this will also be the case with Biden, although he will be approaching it from the point of view of trying to get a deal. What he does and what he might say on Syria will also be reliant in part uh, on how far he gets uh, with Iran. He won't have, I think, a distinct Syria policy. I think that uh, Syria is now put into that sort of too difficult box. It's mucky. Uh, it's a reminder of one of the um, gross failures of the Obama administration. So I think there will be a lot of focus on Iran. The question really is, what if Biden fails? What if there is no deal? Uh, which is really quite possible. Uh, the Israelis, the Emiratis, the Saudis will be clamoring for action because, uh, you know, they will be arguing and others, including in Congress, that uh, Iran is hell-bent on getting a nuclear bomb and uh, something has to be done. And, uh, I, you know, this has little echoes 
of the years prior to 2003 in Iraq, of this just inexorable sort of move towards a conflict. So, you know, uh, it, it's, it's very dangerous. And it means I don't think that there'll be a, a real serious policy on the Middle East. He wants to, he has also said his people, people like Tony Blixen, they want to move away from the Middle East. They want to do other things like Obama's pivot to Asia. You remember that. But frankly, I think the Middle East is going to suck them in because of the alliance with Israel, uh, the relationship with Saudi Arabia, which could be very bumpy. I mean, uh, Biden has made some quite strong comments. They've become a little bit milder in the last month or two, but certainly a year ago, you know, we're talking about a, you know, not selling arms to Saudi, uh, really tough comments on Yemen, on uh, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Well, you know, uh, let's see what he does in office. Let's see if those arms sales are actually uh, stopped when the defense industries start getting their teeth into a Biden administration. I think many people are skeptical and believe that they will probably still go ahead uh, and there won't be such pressures on, on Saudi. But, you know, it, it could be, uh, maybe he will get from Saudi what he wants in Iran in exchange for something else. There could be some uh, deals under the table uh, in all of this. Uh, it, it doesn't look uh, good, to be honest. Garda, if I can come to you on this, I mean, uh, Palestinians sitting in the middle of all of this, uh, often forgotten, um, deals happen around the Palestinians. Uh, I mean, it must be very, very frustrating to you and to, to, to the Palestinians in general. But as, as Chris was just talking now, I was just beginning to wonder, do you think there's any possible role for the Palestinians to play as honest brokers in the region? If Palestinians sort of reach out to the Iranian uh, government and the American government and say, well, look, we, we can try and help you. Um, could that not be an initiative worth a try? Very nice thought. Uh, and, and it wouldn't be the first time. Remember that when Yasser Arafat was alive, one of the things that he was really well known for was trying to bring sides together. Uh, and indeed, that was one of the reasons that he supported Saddam Hussein in, in Iraq. Uh, it, 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 quite apart from the fact that, that Iraq was a generous funder to the PLO, uh, it, it was really to try to, in the quarrel with Kuwait, to try and bring the two sides together. He's well known for that. And that wouldn't be without precedent. However, I must say, uh, in talking about the Palestinians, we haven't said very much about Israel. We, we mentioned it in relation to other things, but we really mustn't forget that um, what is the driver here has been Israel all along. The, the whole, first of all, the question of Palestinian ma marginalization, that the Palestinians are sitting there, decisions are being made over their heads, uh, they, they're powerless and increasingly powerless, is Israel's doing. And that was a very long-term strategy that the Israeli state began from the moment it came into being. It, it worked hard to uh, uh, minimize, uh, 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 demolish if possible, erase if possible, uh, the Palestinians in terms of their history, in terms of the presence, in terms of their rights, in terms of anything that they did. And it worked. It really worked, which is why we have a situation where you can have Arab countries daring to make deals with Israel, um, uh, uh, flouting the, the convention, however they, however sincerely they felt it or not, it's not the point. It was a, an accepted convention that you have supported the Palestinian right to redress for what had been done to them. You don't make friends, friends with the perpetrator uh, of the crimes against them. However, one can see that this has happened. This is Israel's work. It's worked very hard. And of course, Israel's role behind Trump, uh, behind the, uh, your earlier question, um, is this going to go on? How, how are they going to get away with it? The answer is yes, because it's Israel's agenda that Trump follows, and I'm afraid that Biden will follow, maybe not to the same extent, certainly much more circumspectly, but nevertheless, in essence, it's the same. So, uh, in the end, the Palestinians are not in an enviable position. But you know, over all this, I don't know how much time I've got, but you know what is behind all this? 
I'm going to I'm going to cut you because you asked me that key question, which was, gives me the opportunity to leap in and say, yes, you have got more time. Of course, you have Gada, but we've got another question for you, and this is for this is from David Prum in uh, Massachusetts. What would happen if the Biden administration empowered the joint list by engaging with them as a representative of all Palestinian people to force Israel towards the solution of equal rights for all Palestinians and Israelis in a single state? Listen, this is great. It would be wonderful if that happened. Indeed, they're obvious. The, the, uh, the Arab members of the Israeli parliament are an obvious group that any right-thinking um, government in the West should be interacting with, should be dealing with. Of course, that would be wonderful. I have no such hope. I'm sorry to be pessimistic. I don't have this hope. And I don't have this hope because, I think we said earlier, Biden, and by the way, every other Western leader, every other Western leader has this attachment to the two-state solution. And earlier, I tried to stick, say to you, say, why is that? There's a reason for that. And I, I, I'm glad I've got the opportunity. I mean, let me say, that's why they're not going to give it up, because the two-state formula is the only one that will perpetuate the existence of the state of Israel. And what I mean by that is that at one and the same time, if you espouse the two-state solution, what you're really saying is this. Israel must continue to, uh, to, to operate, must remain safe, secure, etc. However, the Palestinian people have got some rights and we must attend to that. We cannot allow ourselves uh, as decent uh, members of the community of nations as democratic states, we cannot accept a thing which denies the Palestinian people any rights at all. So the best way to keep Israel going, nice and safe and secure, and do something for the Palestinians is the two-state formula. That's obviously- Thank you, Thank you Gada. Thank you. I'm gonna to come to you, Phyllis. Um, and, and unfortunately, we are down to our last, uh, 10 minutes or so. So uh, Phyllis, I'm, I'm going to come back to an issue you very, very briefly touched on, because um, you'd mentioned the United Nations, uh, and this kind of, and, and, and Gard was just talking about the two-state solution, which is of course the, uh, the, United, State, uh, the United Nations um, uh, position on all of this, as you well know. I, I'm just interested to, 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 I mean, given the, Given those those positions being held in the United Nations, the General Assembly, and what have you, there's always the prospect for change. But one of the one of the things that clearly has changed in the past few years is the U.S. administration, in particular, has ignored existing UN resolutions, uh, particularly with regard to the occupied territory. So the question, I suppose, is is did, does this change under Biden? And also, I have to ask you this question: um, Nikki Haley was uh, the UN U.S. UN ambassador to the United Nations when they got rid of, when she, was, when she decided to leave, uh, her position was downgraded. It's no longer a cabinet position. And I now see there's rumors that um, Mayor Pete Buttigieg could be a new um, US-UN ambassador. Does this, is this all power for the good? Does it make a great deal of difference? Does it make dif a difference, Phyllis, that the United States might be paying more attention to what the UN thinks and not be following its own uh, narrow interests? If that were true, it would make a great deal of difference. I think that Biden does have a commitment to a version of multilateralism in the sense that in trade deals, he will go back to the idea of multilateral trade deals instead of the insistence that Trump has had on uh, unilateral or bilateral relations with other countries, ignoring the existence of multilateralism. But multilateralism has its limits. And as we know, the United Nations from its origins has always been created in a way to not only empower the five permanent members, but within that to empower the United States. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's a critical, that's a critical thing that we have to keep in mind. That doesn't mean that it doesn't matter who's in, in, the, in the White House and who is the, the UN ambassador. It matters a great deal. The UN ambassador, particularly if it goes back, as I think it will under Biden, to being a cabinet level position, can have uh, a, a significant level of influence, not necessarily in voting the way we want them to against the interest of their president. That, it doesn't work that way. You know, that's not how diplomacy ever works. 
But I think the way they engage with different parts of the UN, the, I think we will see, for example, the US will quickly go back to the WHO. They will probably pay their back dues to the WHO. Will they join COVAX, the new, uh, this, this new coalition to guarantee global equity in the distribution of any vaccine that emerges to deal with the pandemic of COVID? I don't see that. I don't see them going up against what we call big pharma here to challenge the big pharmacy industry. I, I don't think that's going to be the case. So there's going to be this balance. What about UNRWA, Phyllis? With UNRWA, I think the US will restore its funding. Will it pay the back funding that it cut? I doubt it. But I think it's going to be quite transactional, at least at the beginning. I think that there is, though, room, as is always the case, what happens at the United Nations does play an important role in convincing public opinion of what is right, what is international law, what does international law require. There was, we should not forget, a period of eight months in the run-up to the war in Iraq and the first five months of the war in Iraq when the United Nations, including the Security Council, against the wishes of the US and the UK, stood on the side of the global mobilization for peace, refused to embrace and endorse the US-led war. That was crucial. When it collapsed, it made everything worse, not least for the United Nations. That's when that horrific bombing happened that killed 22 members of the UN staff in Baghdad, precisely because they were seen at that point of collaborating with the occupation of Iraq. Mm. So I think we have to see what happens at the UN as a tool for civil society more than anything else. It doesn't enforce itself. It doesn't have enforcement mechanisms. We can fight for some of them, and I think we will have a better chance under an a Biden administration. But I think it's going to be very difficult. One thing that we're gonna to have to fight around is the sanctions issue. I wanted to add just one point that what we were talking about earlier on Iran, the impact of the sanctions over these four years have been devastating for the people of Iran, including children who are dying of malnutrition and treatable diseases, which was never the case for modern day Iran. And what that means is when the Biden administration goes back, whether it's on day one or week one, and says, we want to come back to the JCPOA, to the Iran nuclear deal, the answer is going to be, great, let's reopen negotiations because we want some new concessions now, because your government has kept us under these crippling sanctions for four years. It's not about your predecessor and now you're something new and different. The sanctions were imposed by the United States government and the new leader of the United States government is going to have to pay a price for that, including recognizing that there's going to be new, new possibilities that Iran is going to want. There's going to have to be new concessions made. And the US is going to have to enter into real negotiations, not simply announcing, we're back, isn't that great? And expect everybody to break into cheers. Thank you, Phyllis. Um, look, a quick question from Phyllis. This is from Robert in London, which actually neatly takes me on to the one of the last issues we'll just briefly cover, the domestic British issue. Robert in London asks, is it possible for advocates of Palestine in the UK to continue campaign effectively for the rights of Palestinians when there's no really united, unified Palestinian voice or council in the UK leading the fight from the front? And I say this today looking at what is happening to Corbyn and company today. Um, Garda, I'll come to you on this. Uh, you know, we, we, this is a, a very domestic UK story. The, the former leader of the opposition of the, Labour, the British Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, has been suspended from uh, the Labour Party. We, we, we probably haven't got time. We certainly haven't got time to go into the ins and outs of all of that. But you've spoken very warmly of him previously, and you've written about him in the Middle East Monitor, saying it's the most pro-Palestinian um, British political leader. You had the prospect of power. Um, and that is one of the reasons, really, why he has uh, been kind of defenestrated. Do you think that's, is that a fair summary of your view? What do you think? And what about Robert's question? Yeah, look, um, as far as Jeremy Corbyn is concerned, it seems to me to be very clear. Uh, earlier I've said, if you look at the Western world, nobody really supports, no government, no official, uh, uh, there's no official position of support for the Palestinians. For the first time, we had the potential of a Western leader of a major political party, the British Labour Party, openly espousing the Palestine cause. Uh, there's no question in my mind 
he had to be removed. There was no way that Israel and its supporters were ever going to allow Jeremy Corbyn or anybody like him to take up a position of influence and power in an important Western state. So that, it seems to be self-evident. Therefore, the tools that they used, the, this anti-Semitism hysteria is completely fabricated stuff about uh, rampant anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and, you know, uh, uh, that is the tool they used. But the aim, the motivation seems to me to be clear. People need to have that in their minds. Now, in terms of um, Palestinian supporters, advocates for the Palestine court, you absolutely have to continue. You really do. I understand that we do not have, sadly, a South Africa type situation where you had an African National Congress which set policy and people followed, which is as it should be. But that is not the situation. Um, not least, you know, because the adversary in the case of the Palestinians is so formidable. People mustn't forget that. We're fighting an enemy which is formidable. It has, I was going to say tentacles everywhere, because I've been told I'm anti-Semitic. But really, one must understand that. So whatever that situation, it's a very sad situation for Palestinians, is no time to question your support for the Palestinians and whatever you can do. Because in the end, you know, it's about rights, isn't it? It's about well, thank justice. you, Gala, because we're, we're running really short of time. I'm going to come very quickly to Phyllis. Right. It's just to say that it's about justice. And if you support justice, that's all you need to know. Excellent. Well, that'll, that, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think Mark's very pleased with that, as everybody else is. Thank you very much, Gala. I'm going to come to you, Phyllis, very, very briefly. I mean, yes, anti-Semitism is a big issue. It is an issue in Britain. It is in America. Uh, we, we, we don't have the time to go to the ins and outs. I'll just say in passing that I spoke to a, a close friend of mine at the United Nations the other day, who in every which way is a very progressive individual. And he said, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, isn't he the anti-Semitic one? And herein is the problem. Herein lies the problem. It seems to have got about that Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic. Now, you know him, um, and I know him. I don't think that he is. Uh, do you think that he is? Jeremy is an old and dear friend. We've worked together for years in the anti-war movement, in the Palestinian rights movement. I'm Jewish. I am proud to call him a friend. He is far from anti-Semitic. And I think that what we are seeing is the weaponization of anti-Semitism as a tool to undermine the Palestinian rights movement. And ironically, I, I just wrote this in the chat, ironically, it's undermining the effort to challenge the real anti-Semitism that is on the rise. We've had attacks on synagogues here in the United States. The real danger of anti-Semitism comes from right-wing white supremacy. That doesn't mean that it never has surfaced in the movement for Palestinian rights or somewhere else. Yes, it probably has. And it's, it's dealt with. You know, that is the reality. But the notion that the movement for Palestinian rights is anti-Semitic, the notion that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite, is simply evidence of the weaponization of that charge, knowing what it means to be called anti-Semitic. It's paralyzing and it's designed to be that way. So we have to fight against the false use of the claim of anti-Semitism as much as we fight against real anti-Semitism. Thank you, Phyllis. Just a quick note, this is from Roger Waters. Thank you, Dr. Kami. Yes, it's only about justice and human rights. Uh, the lobby, the lobby has tentacles, but we have a loud choir and we're on the right side. Uh, thank you, Roger. Um, Chris, just very, very briefly before we go, uh, this, uh, th this whole issue of Corbyn and anti-Semitism and the Labour is kind of completely, uh, it's it completely shifted attention away from other issues this past week. We haven't really had a lot of coverage of Pompeo in the Middle East. Do you see there's any way that the, uh, the Labour Party can get itself out of this morass that it seems to be, uh, it seems to be devouring itself in, very briefly? Yes, I do. I think that it, it can go forward. Of course it can. And, you know, it's very uh, necessary. And indeed, many MPs I deal with week in, week out, speak out vigorously for Palestinian rights and justice without any uh, accusations of, of anti-Semitism. So I think, you know, yes, definitely the Labour Party needs to get beyond this. I think that, uh, you know, there have been times there were people who were expelled from the Labour Party for anti-Semitism, and rightly so. And, you know, uh, it's absolutely vital for the Palestinian cause to 
crackdown on what is when, when there is definite anti-Semitism. On the other hand, the weaponization, as Phyllis spoke about, it is to be abhorred. And we see this most notably, and I'll finish on this, in the way in which Secretary of State Pompeo is now trying to say that BDS is anti-Semitic and that this could even extend, say, to groups like Oxfam or Amnesty International, and that's repellent. Uh, it's really, uh, anti-Semitism is a noble cause. Uh, we should do everything to crack down on it. And anti-Semites should not be welcomed in the Palestinian movement in what, no matter what shape or ever, it, it would be wrong, it is wrong. Thank you, Chris. Just a few uh, last minute uh, wrap up comments from uh, people. Wally says, spot on, Phyllis. Michael Gilligan uh, says, got a lot out of all of this. Thank you all for taking time on Friday afternoon to do this. Thank you very much. Um, also, what do we have? Uh, Jean says, uh, thank you all. Samud, everybody. Um, Colin Morris to all panelists, a very interesting chat. I'd like to be optimistic, but I don't see any real reason to be uh, optimistic. John Booth from Fife says, many thanks for arranging this, Mark. John Booth's an old friend of mine, by the way, but I didn't ask him to send in that message. But anyway, thank you very much, John. But more importantly, thank you very much indeed to our guests today. Chris Doyle, Phyllis Bennis, Dr. Garda Kami. What a fantastic discussion it's been. Uh, thank you all for joining us. And thank you also to Kieran Baker, to Omar, to Alex, and to everybody who makes Palestine Deep Dive happen every week at this time on Friday. So until next time, until next Friday, thank you and goodbye. And goodbye to all of you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mark. You.